It's the water we swim in, the air we breathe. It's all around us, yet we hardly notice most of the time. It's a matrix of ideas, incentives, and assumptions that shape our politics, our economy, and our lives. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our opening song tonight is the hymn, Waters to Swim In, by the NYC PCD. Today we kick off the first show in a four-part series we're calling The Way of Neoliberalism on the Political, Social, and Cultural Ideology of Our Time. In our first episode, Selling Democracy, we'll survey the neoliberal project and attempt to get a handle on just how pervasive it is. Joining us this week is Wendy Brown, political science professor at UC Berkeley and author of Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. In our first segment, Brown leads our examination of the origins of neoliberalism through the lens of Michel Foucault. According to Brown, Foucault's Birth of Biopolitics, lectures he delivered in 1978 and 1979, presciently described the outlines of neoliberalism back when it was still in its early stages. Brown brings that critique into the contemporary world, where we find that neoliberalism has come to dominate not just the economic and political order, but has crept into all aspects of our lives. With a simple creed, the more you can replace messy human decision-making with market forces, the better. But there are masters in charge of the multiplicity of markets, and the market with a capital M is not the great wheel in the sky it's claimed to be. And now, Wendy Brown on Selling Democracy, part one of our special series, The Way of Neoliberalism. So first, let me thank you, Wendy Brown, for joining me on Interchange. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, so your book is Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. And um, the point here, uh, I think the point of your book is to say that neoliberalism itself is basically destroying, I guess, what we've thought of as our democratic state or nation. That's right. But you kind of start out... Uh, trying to make use of uh, Foucault, right? Um, that's mm-hmm. kind of your your big thrust, at least in the first part of the book, is is trying to think with and through Foucault's birth of biopolitics lectures. That's right. So it's not so much a book about Foucault in the big sense. Uh, he was a substantial thinker, had many different uh, moments of of different kinds of explorations and different. Uh, concerns during his lifetime, but there's one particular set of lectures that he gave in the late 70s um, where he was very concerned with trying to understand what we now call neoliberalism. And he did a substantial amount of research into the original intellectuals behind neoliberalism, those hailing from Vienna, from Germany, and uh, from the U.S., uh, Chicago, the, the world we most of us know best, the Milton Friedman world. And he studied these intellectuals to try to understand what it was they were arguing against, what it was they were arguing for, 
and what kind of project they had in mind for what would become a neoliberal revolution. And, and what's significant here is that Foucault was writing really at the very beginning of this, uh, the late 70s. And uh, all that we now know to be the sort of full-blown forms of, of what is commonly called actually existing neoliberalism hadn't yet unfolded. But what, what, what Foucault gives us in particular is three important features of neoliberalism. One, that contrary to popular understandings, it's not about recovering laissez-faire, free trade, anything goes economics. It's not just about dismantling the welfare state and unleashing capital and letting it do whatever it wants. Those, those things are there. But what Foucault identifies is what he calls the constructivist project in neoliberalism, an understanding of the market that does not depend on it being natural, but depends upon conditions being constructed for it by the state that will make the market thrive. And by thrive, the neoliberals all meant keep it competitive. So they weren't just concerned about too much welfare and too little freedom for capital. They were also concerned about monopolies and about stagnation and about oligopolies and about state industries and about all kinds of things that they understood as interfering with and preventing the competitiveness of markets. But Foucault's point, they also saw markets as something that needed to be constructed, propped, uh, facilitated by the state. So that's one important thing Foucault draws our attention to. Second important thing is the extent to which neoliberalism isn't just uh, a theory of economy. It's a whole theory of society. It's a theory of society that says competition is good, markets are good, both because they produce freedom, but also because they produce spontaneous order. They produce order without having to have democratic majorities determine what is good. So the second important feature here is that neoliberalism isn't just a theory of markets, it's a theory of society as a whole, and it's a theory that says the more you can produce market-like behavior in every corner of society, the better. Now that leads to the third point, which is the one that I really devote the book to, um, which is the anti-democratic thrust of neoliberalism. And by anti-democratic, I don't just mean it opposes democracy uh, in favor of capital's domination or something like that. That's not a particularly interesting way to think about neoliberalism. Rather, the anti-democratic feature rests in the extent to which neoliberalism is trying to replace democratic decision-making with market decisions. Hmm. It's trying to replace in every possible corner of life the idea of the people deciding, the will of the people deciding what should be done, how we should live, how we should organize ourselves, what we should value, and instead turn that over to markets everywhere we possibly can. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is part one of The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Democracy. And our guest is Wendy Brown, author of Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. 
Well, you, you use the term we a lot there, again, so deciding that nations in particular should be changed to serve a particular uh, idea of government or how people ought to be organized does require some some governing folks. It does indeed. Um, I think it's important to, to see, though, that many who are governing today are not governing as um, self-conscious hmm neoliberal thinkers, they're governing according to what I argue in the book has become the dominant mode of mm-hmm. reason for thinking about all aspects of political and economic life. And I can give you local examples. Mm-hmm. The the one I use, one of the ones I use in the book has to do with higher education. You know, the higher education as a whole mm-hmm. has increasingly been submitted to neoliberal transformations so that every aspect of universities is now understood in market terms. And that's not because the people actually governing the universities are trying to carry out some nefarious neoliberal plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's because neoliberalism has become the air and the water of our time. It's the how we think. So, yeah, I get you. That's that's and and this I think is I just want to add here. It's it's an important point uh, in in understanding neoliberalism that on the one hand, it involves a set of very concrete institutional changes, stripping the welfare state of its classic redistributive and protective functions, replacing progressive with regressive taxation, uh, deregulating industry, Especially important was deregulating the banks, which gave us financialization. So all those institutional changes are are part of what happens. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what neoliberalism inaugurates is a whole new mode of reason where we think in market terms about every aspect of life. And that's really novel. That, That was not classical liberalism. Classical liberalism kept the markets to the markets, and then there was civil society and religion and family, and each of those domains had their own orders of value and their own modes of reason that organized them. Um, But neoliberalism transforms us into individuals and worlds in which market reason is the only form of reason. Now, what's significant about that is that modern liberal democracy is very much grounded in the idea that individual rights and liberties are fundamental to a people governing themselves together, not just fundamental to people pursuing their own interests, but also fundamental to the very kinds of things encoded in our um, Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Um, And these things are not just about individual interest, they're also about modes of political participation. They're ways to ensure that the people themselves are able to speak, speak together, organize together, and do all kinds of other things that uh, permit the possibility of rule by the people. Mm -hmm. When liberalism through neoliberalism is simply reduced to an economic meaning, it strips out all of that democratic potential from liberalism. And and that's really important. I mean, even if one is critical of liberal democracy, as I have been, um, as being a limited form of democracy, to strip out the democratic aspects of liberalism and say everything comes down only to market is- issues, market meanings, and market principles. And that's what's happened in our Supreme Court. 
that is the basis of decisions like Citizens United and a whole series of other decisions where the Supreme Court has essentially transposed the meaning of rights, rights of speech, rights of participation, voting rights, and so forth, to an economic meaning. Well, the question still continues to be then, these particular viewpoints of market value, you know, where do they come from or what they're, like generally how we believe that it has that kind of uh, dominance, you know, that markets are the thing we're going to adhere to yes. to the end of days, right? How do we get so yeah, How do we get, yes, <laughs> how do we get into that place where markets yeah. are the thing? Well, a couple of things. I do think the question of how uh, neoliberal ideas gain traction is one that many thinkers and researchers are still working on because um, what's remarkable about neoliberal ideas when they were first being formed in the aftermath of World War II is they were seen as the ideas of really just a few crackpots. I mean, they were not... They, these these. Uh, the originals, you know, Hayek and Rupke and Boykin and Friedman were not seen as mainstream. They, their attacks on Keynesianism and their bid to fully economize every aspect of existence was just seen as, as the ideas of some crazies. And then the question is, how does that kind of outlier view take hold? And there are a lot of different answers, but I'll say very briefly that the crises of capitalism in the 70s related to OPEC, related to the shift of economic gravity away from Europe and the U.S. and into the Middle East and China, related to the, the sort of collapsing capacity for profitability by corporations where unions were very strong and uh, where corporate agreements with employees had the quality of essentially many welfare states. Mm -hmm. You know, you work for the corporation forever and you have your holidays and your pensions and your health benefits and everything else provided <laughs> just as one should. Um, these kinds of things together certainly produced a crisis which enabled a possibility for some new ideas and some new programs to take hold. But that only tells you the conditions were there. It doesn't mm -hmm. tell you why it worked. And I want to suggest a couple of things, but none of which go as deeply as, as we need to go to get at this, which is that neoliberalism, even though it's very anti-democratic, and even though it produces the conditions for extreme accumulations of capital at the expense of the many, what have come to often be called now the 99%, mm -hmm. it was sold as the opposite. It was sold as finally getting rid of the ways in which the market was rigged by the few, whether unions or the very rich, and it was also sold as democracy. Mm -hmm. It was sold as this is true democracy, welfare democracy, social democracy, that's socialism. So between a kind of capitalizing on the end of the experiments with communism and socialism, 1989, and saying the future rests with capitalism and capitalism is equivalent to democracy, and building all of that out of a crisis that capitalism was in the midst of in the 70s, 
that becomes the beginning of the answer of how it took hold. Today, of course, we're seeing a pretty serious rebellion. It's not always called a rebellion against neoliberalism, but between Brexit and Trump and Sanders Mm -hmm. and a number of other political parties, left political parties in Europe, Podemos, Syriza, the Indignados, and others, what you see, both left and right, are rebellions against the effects of neoliberalism, even if it's not called a rebellion against it. And the whole convergence around opposing the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement is fascinating because 20 years ago, an agreement like that would have simply been understood by everybody as a cardinal expression of neoliberal truth. Of course you have free trade. And now, what do you see? Left to right, opposition to that agreement. Hmm. I'm not saying we're about to enter a different era, because I have already said that I think the actual institutional principles of neoliberalism are only one part of it. And the idea that everything is about markets and everything should be submitted to marketization is another part. And I don't think that has taken much of a beating. Hmm. I think what we're getting is specific objections Mm -hmm. and specific populist rebellions against the effects of neoliberalism without actually naming the larger order of reason that has brought us to this pass. It's time for a break. Tonight I'm speaking with Wendy Brown on Selling Democracy, the first episode in our four-part series, The Way of Neoliberalism. You're listening to Lost in the Supermarket by The Clash. More with Wendy Brown when Interchange returns on WFHB. I'm now lost in the supermarket. I can no longer shop happily. I came in here for a special offer. Guaranteed personality. Guaranteed personality 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's episode is Selling Democracy, the first in our four-part series, The Way of Neoliberalism. Wendy Brown, author of Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution, is our guest. Before the break, we looked at the roots of neoliberalism, an explicit set of organizing principles for governments and economies, which has grown to become something more, a way of market thinking that dominates our values. Coming up, we've seen the ruse, but we cannot escape it, even as it presents inherent inequality and substitutes democratic values with pure market competition. We find ourselves driven to think of our lives, even our most quotidian decisions, in terms of human capital. More with Wendy Brown on Selling Democracy, tonight on Interchange. One of the things that I wanted to to try to hit on too, and I think you make explicit in here, is the the paradox or the sort of constant paradoxes in all of these particular tenets. One uh, that you mentioned is the idea that there's competition, market competition, uh, that had that leads to markets having just outcomes at the same time. But competition, you point out, is already a kind of inequality uh, prospect. Correct. So um, the argument that I think you're um, drawing from the book is one in which I suggest that when democracy and its basic features of equality, liberty, and universal inclusion, so everybody gets the same equality and liberty, um, when those principles are transformed into the principles of nothing other than the equal right to compete, you suddenly introduce structural, I mean, givenness of inequality into the picture. Why? Because markets, while everyone may um, formally be granted access to them, they're about winners and losers. Mm -hmm. You don't have competition in which everybody wins and everybody ends up on the same footing. So at its most basic level, the substitute of market principles for liberal democratic principles in understanding democracy builds in the expectation of inequality into an order called democratic that has always expressed equality as its first principle. Hmm. It's perplexing. Like all, like um, I think generally, as I was reading your book, it you, you I think I underlined every other sentence <laughs> because <laughs> you know you walk through each thing in in such a clear way that it also makes me confused at the ability not to see this, I think you call it a, a grand ruse at some point, mm -hmm. um, these uh, particular ideas uh, co-opt every part of your life in a way that, yes. as you say, you can't you can't normally think beyond it, even it, even as you get to the point where you start to re reject it or imagine it being a negative in your life, uh, you still are stuck with having to operate within it. You're absolutely right. I think the that once you begin to understand what some have called the neoliberalization of everyday life or the financialization of everyday life, and you see the extent to which you treat yourself as a little bit of human capital, always trying to keep your value up and figure out what investments will increase your value for the future. And then you start seeing everything from Facebook to choice of gym to all kinds of very quotidian decisions and choices and anxieties mm -hmm 
how many hits did I get for right. that little blog I posted yesterday? All of those things you begin to understand as part of how we've come to understand ourselves in terms of shareholder value and um, capital enhancement. And I think what I experience when I'm talking with my undergraduates about neoliberalism and the way that it's reshaped our world is this moment usually where most of them say, oh, mm -hmm. I see it. And then they see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and you do wonder, how come you don't see it everywhere before you have, you know, some book like Philip Morawski's or mine or others to say, you know, this is our world. This is the world we live in. And of course, the reason is precisely that it is the air and the water we breathe. I mean, the air we breathe and the water we swim in. Yeah, right. <laughs> precisely that um, there's not a stark outside. And I think a long historical view makes it obvious. And a theoretical critique makes it obvious. But otherwise, we're just wandering around doing as you say, right. conducting ourselves as we are supposed to conduct ourselves when we live in a world in which we, we have become bits of human capital in an order in which there is one mandate enhance your value and watch out for the things that would devalue your capital um, make sure that you don't go to the wrong conferences or network with the wrong people or tweet in ways that might suddenly cause you uh, to collapse in reputation or uh, financial improvement hmm. well it's it is a um... It is difficult because you can also have these conversations and still know that you're still swimming in that water. And uh, it's I, terrible, yeah, isn't it? It's a little yeah, I mean, I found it in child rearing that I knew right, better. Right. And at the same time, in thinking about the college prospects for my own kid, I had mm -hmm. this the same anxiety that everybody else did about, uh, you know, what they were doing as seven-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds and were they doing the right community service projects not because I, they were supposed to become good community-oriented people but because of what it would do to enhance their resume for college applications which in turn would enhance their future as bits of human capital in the world and all of that you can know all of that and as you say still be doing it yeah you don't know how not to do it or you're frightened of not yeah, doing sure, it yeah sure sure in right. in the same way that any competitive world any any order of competition leaves you very frightened about opting out and in some ways, even though this is forced on you as a kind of responsibility, I think you use the term responsibilize, um, mm -hmm. it's contingent, right? It's, it, even though it's forced on you to feel like it's your responsibility, uh, any day, any moment, the, 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 the plant closes down, the bank Terrific. fails. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think everybody is doomed to failure, but I think the point you raise is just so important, which is that on the one hand, um, we are tasked with taking care of ourselves entirely within a neoliberal order. The attack on the, on the providing state and safety nets and um, expecting you know, the community to provide for ourselves, that's out. And instead, each of us is tasked with individual survival and thriving. And the word that you quoted, that ugly word, responsabilization, is actually not mine. It was Margaret Thatcher's mm -hmm. um, and then taken over as well by the French. They both use it to talk about remaking people who are used to depending on the state as responsible individual 
subjects who will just take care of themselves. And then, as you point out, anything could happen. Suddenly, the industry that you have been working in could collapse or move offshore. Suddenly, the neighborhood that you have very carefully invested all your savings in to buy a little house, just like you were told you were supposed to in an ownership society, uh, could be blighted by some new form of development or toxicity or something else. And uh, or suddenly the currency could collapse in the nation that you have been endeavoring in in your responsible little way. So all kinds of contingencies that are indeed built in, especially to a speculative economy, a financialized economy, which goes up and down. That's by nature. That's what what speculation in the financial markets means. All kinds of uh, contingencies could take masses of responsible citizens and suddenly throw them overboard. And that's, you know, part of the game. Yeah, it's it's no fun, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> it's no fun. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is part one of The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Democracy. And our guest is Wendy Brown, author of Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. Well, uh, uh, having been doing a few of these shows f over the last year, we did um, we did a show on uh, positive psychology, more from the torture uh, psychologists, and uh, learned a little bit about Martin Seligman there and experiments and learned helplessness and the positive psychology movement. It seems like these things have kind of sprung up in this place, the precarity, I guess, of human capital uh, gives you, one, this sense of being beaten into submission that mm -hmm. you can't even bite. You know, if Seligman's learned helplessness in those dogs, they, they stop even biting. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they just you submit to this pain. And then at some point, you've got to be taught that you're responsible for how you feel about the pain. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. your job to and to deal with the pain responsibly so that you can feel uh, not necessarily happy about it, I guess, but maybe not complain about it. Just get along with the pain um, and that responsibility. It's just one of those things that's just shocking to me that 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 seems to be the the actual narrative that we've come to believe in. You know, that I agree. It, and, yeah. There's a I mean, on the one hand, neoliberalism presents as maximum individual freedom, self-invention, um, and constant reinvention. You know, that's supposed mm -hmm. to be the beauty of contemporary society is that uh, you do something for a little while, you do something else. That's the gig economy. Right. That's the disruptive economy and so forth. But the truth of it, I think, is told in our pharmaceutical industry. What are the three just exploding drugs prescribed today? Antidepressants? Mm -hmm anti-anxiety drugs, and off-market, high-performance drugs, Adderall. Mm. So what do we have? Right. We, you know, you, every, every society has to be understood as imbibing the drugs that reflect in some ways what its political economy and its political values are. So, you know, opium in the 19th century for the masses. And what do we have today? Anti-anxiety, antidepressants, and, um, and Adderall. And I think the Adderall is really important to add in there because it's not just that we need to numb the pain or reduce the anxiety of this constant precarity, whether we're at the top of the scale or the bottom, but we also have to be performing in these 
hyperbolic ways to chase the competition and the number of people in ordinary middle and working class families who are starting their kids on Adderall off market at a very young age is frightening Mm. to produce that concentration, that performance, that enhanced capacity. Uh, So, you know, we have our eyes on, on, on sports doping a lot. We should actually be looking at mass cultural doping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's so many, uh, so many sort of ways in which we do these things to ourselves uh, as part of this world we live in the uh, again the the air we breathe as you say is trying to understand you know just trying to understand with the way we talk about these things right we use the word competition i know enough people now in my life who who would question competition as an actual value or something mm-hmm. that but at the same time as you say we're kind of stuck in that market world and this is what sports is this is what every you know this is what we see in advertising all the time so competition is going to be one that's hard to beat out of beat out of us yes uh, but there are many others as well and listen i would i would say it's not that we need to be for or against competition as um, anybody who is avid about sports and I have that in me um, will acknowledge you know there is nothing as extraordinary as uh, and and magnificent in the human species perhaps as as uh, a really amazing sports match whether it's whether it's tennis or soccer or swimming or whatever else your thing is but um, the question is what it means to make it the organizing principle of human existence Mm -hmm. and promulgate it across every dimension of life and organize it into a particular kind of market where the competition and the anxiety for for success is not just about the present but is also about constant concern with one's future value right. or future trajectory. And, and we haven't talked about this very much. I keep alluding to it, but that's, that's where the financialization of everyday life mm-hmm. is important because that's how financial markets work. And, um, but I think your real point here is that it's hard to imagine another world or hard to imagine resisting this world. I think what's crucial here is the wallet is very difficult to do that. It's also important to remember how recent this is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just if we start with the West being, you know, close to 2,800 years old, and then if we think about human existence as a whole being tens of thousands of years old, what does it mean to say there's no alternative to an order that has only been around for 35 years? Right. And that, I think, is the beginning of thinking about whether another world is possible. Well, this it's one is of those, not it, a permanent feature of a human existence. I think it's one of those struggles we face with um, with climate change, too, in some sense. Like, yes. they, born of these same moments, right? Born of this same idea of, and how we operate within this world, it erased all of the other ways of being for so many exactly. people. Right? Exactly. Right? So it is hard yeah. to, even, you know, even as you go back and read history, you're sort of stuck thinking through it in your own, uh, you know, your own current moment, I suppose. But um, it's well, and here's where I just mm -hmm. have to, Frederick Jameson summed all of this up in this pithy sentence that I'm sure you've quoted before on this show. But in case not, he said, why is it that today it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is our predicament, right? right? We are all staring into 
the possibility of bringing this world to an end through an order which cannot make sustaining the planet a primary value. Yeah. And it's a remarkable thing. But yeah. anyway, that, that sentence, I think, captures the, the enormous power of the present order, but at the same time, it's absurdity. Right. Well, I, I, that's an interesting thing to say. I, I, what I'd hesitate to say that it seems different to me. One can imagine the, you know, the apocalyptic imaginary existing in every moment, um, mm-hmm. while living within particular different ways of organizing society. I think it is easy to imagine annihilation for some, <laughs> for some reason. I mean, it's going to happen to you anyway, personally, but, uh, uh, yes. it's easy to yes. imagine it because of it, I think. Um, but it is hard to imagine a different way of being that you, that you're just, you're just a part of, right? So it's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, what I hold out for is, uh, and I'm not a person of a great deal of hope or optimism, but, uh, as long as we're on this planet, we have to try to turn back the dark in my view. Mm-hmm. So what I hold out for is, uh, that human beings capacity to produce, you know, this extraordinary technological, social, cultural, religious, political set of forces and powers and, uh, and developments. Some of them magnificent, some of them horrifying that our capacity to do that surely isn't required to reach its end in apocalypse. Mm. <laughs> we also surely have the capacity to make things come out differently. Well, and, one hopes, right? You know, yep. it's not, it's by no means guaranteed, right. but it would be awfully sad if the creature that has uh, the brains, the spirit, the innovation, the capacity to make history that we have, unlike any other species on earth, uh, only could produce uh, a wreck and the end. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a question. It's a very open question. I'm afraid many of many people answer it darkly, and yeah. I I fear that one one dimension of the populism that we see today uh, could be described as a pop, apocalyptic mm-hmm. populism. Sure. That is, uh, oh yeah, Brexit's probably going to be a disaster, but let's push it over the edge and see what happens. And I've even heard Trump supporters making this argument. Oh, we know he's going to blow things up, but you know something's got to change. What, yeah, what's on the other side? Let's let's see what happens. Right, right. On a string, I was held the way I knew. Can you tell my actions are orchestrated from above? So I swing. It's time for another break. This is False Advertising by Bright Eyes. We'll return in a moment with more Wendy Brown on neoliberalism, a way of thinking that has crept into all aspects of life. First song, I was born, now I love when I talk with the care. Stage, I was pushed with my sorrow, well rehearsed. So give me all your pity and your money now, all of it. But if I could ask. 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's show is Selling Democracy, the first episode in a four-part series on the way of neoliberalism. Our guest is Wendy Brown, UC Berkeley political science professor and author of Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. In our final segment, we look at the cost of neoliberalism's stealth revolution, economizing our values into language that sounds progressive but replaces deeper concepts like the good life and the common good. We also dive into a couple of real-world examples of neoliberalism's corrosive and sometimes absurd effects, like when Indiana National Guardsmen find themselves in Iraq, supposedly teaching the people who live at the site of civilization's ancient agricultural revolution how to farm wheat. Well, it's essential, I think, again, uh, as you point this out, to to remember this language. You know, I think that, again, the terms we use daily, right, uh, problem-solving, participation, consensus, accountability, effectiveness, efficiency, equitability, inclusiveness, you know, all these things serve yes. to sound right. These are they all do, positive terms. Yeah, we yes. want this to be to be how yes. we live our lives, but they're they're not in the service of of uh, more than mere. Well, yeah, I think you use the term mere life. They're in the service of mere life, it seems, rather than uh, mm-hmm. perhaps a higher form of living or or nature. Mm-hmm. And we might need to unpack that. But what's what is this mere life they're in the service of? So let me just take one part of your question. Sure. I think uh, it's true that what's remarkable about so many of the vocabulary terms of ordinary neoliberal governance is that they sound roughly progressive mm-hmm. or at least neutral. All those terms you just listed, one doesn't feel like arguing with them. Right. They're not evil. And yet there's something both that they're masking, but there's also something as importantly uh, that they're promoting. And part of it is integration into a project, the norms of which one never gets to question. It's not that we don't have debates about what should be taught and so forth, but those are considered political debates. And those political debates are precisely what neoliberal governance exists to try to bracket. So that depoliticization, and I want to call it also de-democratization, that, that refusal of politics that at the same time sweeps away democracy from our uh, practices in everyday life, Um, is very important to the ways in which we are, as you put it, caught in the ruse, Mm -hmm. where we can't see always what's going on. Now, the mere life, good life question that you raised, I do want to spend just a minute with. So uh, way back in the history of political thought, Aristotle made a distinction between what he called mere life, which was the life of survival. In his time, it was the life supported by the institution of slavery, And then he had the term, the good life, or 
the life of the free human being, which was about pursuing ends and values apart from mere survival. And one of the things I find striking about neoliberalism is that it's gotten rid of that distinction. Everything is about competitive survival, Mm -hmm. whether it's competitive survival at the very top in celebrity culture or among the rich, or whether it's competitive survival among corporations or competitive survival among university students, everything is reduced to economic value. And that's, that's why I introduced that old notion to just note that we've, we've taken what philosophers have long thought of as the distinctly human part of us, the part that is not simply laboring to live, but thinking, creating, inventing, loving, uh, yeah, all those things have been captured, things, right? They've been captured in the service of an entrepreneurial culture as well, right? Have it been economized? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's, um, so it wasn't that long ago I saw a, it was some kind of grant-funded proposal by some foundation somewhere about how to, uh, you know, operate within the arts arts industry, art artists' economy, that kind of thing. And another friend sent me something on Facebook the other day about uh saying something to the effect you can see the stark divide between the country and the creative economy and how the South it doesn't have a creative economy. And uh, mm-hmm. I was like, well, good gosh. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like that's Well, that's the interesting yeah. thing, is that all those things have not only, not only has creativity and love and fiction and poetry and so forth been submitted to economization, all those things have now been deposited in economic domain. You're so right. so it, just as ethics, have, you know, we have ethical capitalism and we have the creative economy and we have, you know, most of our psychology is now devoted to questions of work and innovation and so forth. So there we are. Right. There has to be more to life. I don't think so, Wendy. This is it. We're stuck. <laughs> I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is part one of The Way of Neoliberalism, Selling Democracy. And our guest is Wendy Brown, author of Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution. Let me, let me ask you to sort of uh, touch base, if you could, on your Iraqi example of Order 81 with the, the Bremer provisional government. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to have you just mention uh, a liberal arts education you, you bring in at the end as well and, and why it has value or, or why it should have Great. value. Mm-hmm. So when the so-called Coalition of the Willing, the United States, Australia, the UK, and Poland invaded Iraq um, in the early part of this century, uh, it was ostensibly in the name of uh, freeing it from the tyranny of Saddam Hussein. The operation was called Operation Iraqi Freedom. And soon after Hussein was toppled, uh, Paul Bremer took over as both the manager and the provisional governor of Iraq. And what Bremer did was issue a series of 100 orders to um, refound the state of Iraq in a very openly neoliberal fashion. It was all about abolishing public industries, uh, constraining and outlawing a number of unions, deregulating capital, inviting foreign capital in, allowing profits to be repatriated, uh, anywhere in the world. It really made Iraq just 
and I, this is not controversial, um, what I'm describing here, I made Iraq just the playground of capital in every way and pretty much wiped out top already, you know, toppling small businesses and enterprises and um, really transformed the society in uh, overnight. These orders were eventually written into law when we established the provisional sovereign government of Iraq. But I study in the book one order in particular, which was an order that outlawed the use of heirloom seeds in Iraqi agriculture. And I pose the question, why? Why would you outlaw something in a neoliberal government uh, that producers freely want to use? And... um, the answer, of course, is that this law was written by agricultural giants, Monsanto and others, who wanted to introduce into Iraq new forms of wheat production. And that new form of wheat production involved hybrid seed, GMO modified seed, and the fertilizers and planting techniques that go with it. So what happened was that in a matter of just a couple of years, through the outline of heirloom seed produ- uh, wheat production, which uh, was uh, involved small farms and saving seeds over years and a great diversity in seeds. So it was quite sustainable. It's the kind of thing we do now here in the hills of California in the name of artisanal farming. Um, but Iraq had it all set up and they'd been since, you know, 8,000 years ago, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, producing wheat sustainably for those 8,000 years. We wiped that out in a couple of years and instead producing Iraq as an export platform for a form of wheat, pasta wheat, that the Iraqi diet doesn't actually make use of, but can be produced cheaply in Iraq and can then be exported around the world. Sent to Texas, I think you said. Exactly. (laughs) So the story here is one of a combination, and this was really the moral of the story, of a little legal tweak of something that then had come with it, a whole series of what were called best practices. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are actually best practices in relationship to uh, large agribusiness style farming and profit. Right. And what I was trying to show in this particular discussion was the way in which neoliberalized law and neoliberal best practices transforms uh, a, a region, an economy, a set of people, mm-hmm. uh, a, a culture, <laughs> and a whole order of production uh, in sometimes very little time. Well, let me. I was uh, trying to show the way that law. And no, it's, it was. It's, it struck me as I was reading it because we had had uh, a local uh, journalist who who was on the program talking about a group of essays he'd written, and one of them had to do with his his traveling with uh, National Guard unit here in Indiana over to Iraq to do this exact thing, and I wasn't. I wasn't like aware of it in the right. in the way you're talking about it. I was just like, what? They're going over to teach Iraqis to how what? to farm? How I was to like, farm? They don't know how to farm their own. <laughs> I was like, they're, just as you say in the book, they've been doing it for 8,000 years. They need, you know, uh, Indiana National Guard farmers 
to teach yes. them how to farm. And they've provided wheat for all of Mesopotamia. Oh my gosh. I, so your book made that clear to me, you know, yes. I was like, oh, that's what they're doing. Okay. Yes. Okay. Good. Well, I'm glad we threw Thank light you. on a, on a story yes. from the past. Very briefly on higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, I devote a whole chapter to it and I've devoted a number of other writings to it. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because I'm at the University of California uh, often considered one of the premier public universities in the world and have been painfully watching its subjection to Mm -hmm. neoliberal privatization. And one of the things that has been the hardest is to sustain the value of a liberal arts education. And by liberal arts, I don't just mean the humanities. I mean a broadly educated student who is broadly educated, not just because it's a good thing for humanity, but also to make good citizens, to make a democracy thrive in a complex time, namely contemporary times, uh, you really need citizens who understand something about science, something about critical reason, something about social science, and be deliberate, deliberating and thoughtful human beings. It is very hard to sustain that value when... The concrete economics of universities is that they become more and more expensive every year because they're privatized, because they're no longer state-supported. And so students are impelled to try to just get in there, get a vocation, and get out. And the values that organize universities are that we ought to be supplying whatever inputs to students enhance their individual human capital value that we're not making citizens, that we're not making broadly educated human beings. We are simply helping students invest in themselves so that they can maximize their capital value when they leave. And between those two forces, the actual finances of education on the one hand and the values organizing everything on the other, it is incredibly difficult to keep alive that principle that a liberal arts education is what as the original inventors of liberal arts said, every free human being needs. Right. Well, you're not free anymore. Right. So you don't need to worry about it, I guess. There you go. Well, uh, the the one question finally, though, is, you know, and, and this obviously comes out of that, you know what you just were talking about how we how we create an an individual we these are interesting conversations because we use terms like this right what what does society create uh in its members you know how do we organize ourselves and in the organization we create people as well and so these are new ways to create people and but what it's done and what you say it's done is it kind of erase the idea even that there is a public intent in anything, a public or what we used to call a public good or a a public idea. Everything is little bitty private goods or private intentions. That's right. So that's right. How are we supposed to find a way to be public anymore for the social good? Um, These are words we're, we're hardly even able to talk about anymore. Correct. If neoliberalism fully had its way, the word would just be slowly eliminated Mm -hmm. from our vocabulary. Um, So I think the challenge has been to try to move against that order of values with the notion that there is not only a public good, but possibly even a common good, Mm -hmm. and that that common good includes not only 
what people may need, but what the planet may need. Mm -hmm. You can't get to planetary sustainability or salvageability through individual private goods. You just cannot get there that way. There are lots of climate change economists trying to get us there that way mm -hmm. by, by placing a price on every resource to every human being. But we will only get there if we understand that the planet is a common good and a shared good and one that we all have to care for, not just invest in, but care for. So from planetary sustainability to the question of what kind of society we want to live in, what neighborhoods we want, what transportation we want, what uh, values we want to live by, uh, I think it's absolutely vital that we uh, resuscitate notions of public goods, uh, argue about them, understand uh, that they will be different today than they have ever been before, uh, partly because of climate change challenges, partly because of multicultural societies that are unprecedented, uh, partly because of technological developments. They will be different. It won't be some generic public good from the 1920s, but uh, we, we must bring back that vocabulary and that discourse. Well, I don't know, Wendy, that sounds deliberative, and I don't know if I can just press the like button on that one. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for spending so much time with me, Wendy. Uh, Wendy Brown, thank you for joining me today on Interchange. It is a pleasure to talk with you. That's it for Interchange tonight. We're bringing the show to a close with Love for Sale by Ahmad Jamal. This was the first episode in our four-part series on The Way of Neoliberalism. Tonight was Selling Democracy with Wendy Brown. UC Berkeley political science professor and author of the 2013 title Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism's Stealth Revolution, published by Zone Books. Next time on Interchange, part two in our series, Selling Ignorance with Philip Murawski professor of economics and the history and philosophy of science at the University of Notre Dame. Step one in constructing the way of neoliberalism is to create confusion. Ignorance is a good to be fostered among the teeming masses. Of course, this is the exact opposite of what democracy needs to survive. Selling Ignorance, part two of our special series, The Way of Neoliberalism, next time on Interchange. Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB and online at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.